Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. So glad to be with you. It is with great pleasure that I introduce today's guest, James A. Sharp. He is a professor emeritus of early modern history at the University of York and a specialist in witchcraft and crime and punishment in early modern England. He has written numerous books, including Crime in 17th Century England, Instruments of Darkness, Witchcraft in England, 1550 to 1750, and the book he is here to discuss with me today, called Dick Turpin, The Myth of the English Highwaymen. Thank you so much for joining me today. Great to have you. Well, thanks for inviting me. Yes. So, did you grow up hearing stories about Dick Turpin? Well, it's a difficult one because... um, I'm, I'm told that uh, you know Turpin is a figure who is increasingly not recognised by certainly the younger British public. But um, uh, I, th- I think I'm making the point in the book that certainly when I was you know a young uh, a boy or a young man, uh, Turpin was one of those handful of historical figures that everybody could recognise, and he was somebody who figured very largely, uh, more or less in folklore, but certainly in popular culture. Um, there was, for example, an extremely popular TV series made about Turpin in the in the 1970s, which was pure fiction, but which was very, very popular and widely watched. Yeah, that that's true, right. It, it veered dramatically from the actual history. Yeah, very much. This is this is what I think makes the, the Turpin story so interesting, because um, there is enough documentation from the early 18th century, which is when he, when he flourished, to reconstruct the historical Turpin. And then we've got a very clear line on how the romantic fictional Turpin developed. I mean, this is unlike, for example, Robin Hood, who's again a very familiar figure, uh, about whom there are numerous legends, but I think nobody has actually pinned down a real historical figure. So with Turpin, you've got both the history and the construction of the later myth. So what comes to mind, do you think, for the average uh, British citizen, let's say, 
when, when they think of, of Dick Turpin, what are the stories that are repeated, passed on? Well, firstly, there's an image. I mean, um, I don't know if uh, this will be familiar to your listeners, but the sort of the what was known as the tricorn hat. I think a lot of people in the in the American colonies would have been wearing these in the 18th century. But um, I had to sort of turn up in three corners, a sort of frock coat, uh, riding boots, uh, holding a pistol, possibly with a mask on, uh, and that's the image. the The character is of a bold, resourceful, but innately chivalrous criminal. Highway robbers were, if you like, the problem criminals in the early 18th century. You know, there's a sort of barometer, and if there's a lot of highway robbery going on, the British public gets gets worried. You know, it's one of the things that you measure criminality by. Uh, and in the period, you were already getting romantic stories of highwaymen. I mean, it's a man in the 17th century called Claude Duval, who was French, which helped him become a, a romantic figure. But, you know, these guys had a sort of reputation for boldness, for daring. Uh, there were a lot of sort of pamphlets written about them, especially after their execution. Uh, and I think the British public picked up this idea of Dick Turpin as a sort of, um, you know, as a sort of courageous, gallant, heroic figure. And the image is perpetuated, you write, by art as well. You mentioned Claude Duval. There's a painting uh, by the artist William Powell Firth, and it depicts a highwayman, right? Yeah. A romanticized version of a highwayman. Very much so. I mean, Firth was one of the great Victorian painters. Uh, and this is a story in which Duval was meant to have, uh, with associates, one imagines, meant to have held a stagecoach up. And one of his associates had a, had a, had a flageolet, which is a sort of a, a recorder which he played on. And Duval danced a sort of uh, gig with uh, with uh, the uh, women folk who were in the carriage that he just held up, uh, and then sort of decided that these women were so charming, he'd remit the uh, theft and gave the sort of males with them, the men with them, the money back. So this, this is, you know, uh, pure nonsense, I think, but it's the way we like to imagine highwaymen. Right, right. So when was the, the era of the highwaymen? Uh, yeah, it's, um, I mean, highway robbery is basically, well, uh, a, a, a lot of highway robbery is very much akin to mugging. You know, they're just sort of basically robberies committed on the King's Highway. But there was a feeling that, you know, the Royal Highway was a place that needed special protection because that was where his or her Majesty's subjects went about their business and trading and so on. Uh, and I think the golden age of highway robbery, if you like, is between about 1650 uh, and about 1750, 1760, something like that, when a lot of people were moving around with sums of money, or you had rich people riding stagecoaches, uh, or you had postmen, you know, the people riding around on behalf of the post office, carrying, among other things, sort of uh, precious goods or money. So I think you had a vulnerable target for highway robbers, and all you needed was a horse and a pair of pistols. And they were very much written about in contemporary crime pamphlets. I think this is an important thing to realise, that you have a whole genre, uh, which starts off in the Elizabethan period with murders, but uh, you have a whole genre of pamphlets which are written about highway robbers, uh, which I think really kicks off in the middle of the 17th century. Another element in the mix is after the English Civil War, 
the story is, I don't think, I don't think anybody's ever really checked this out, that a number of uh, royalist officers, the royalists were the losing side in the Civil War, turned to highway robbery after the war because um, they were they hated the regime, if you like. They hated the Republican regime. So between about 1650 and about 1750 is when we really see highway robbery flourish and when we see a lot of writing about highway robbers as well in the, in the popular press. Yeah. These highwaymen, you write, were actually from what we would call today middle-class families, mm. tradesmen, farmers. Yeah, very much so. Uh, there's also the point if they come from a respectable family, it makes a good story for the pamphlet writers. That's another element that comes in. That's true, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, yeah. broadly, um, they do seem to be largely uh, from you know, respectable backgrounds, lower middle class to upper middle class. Were there highway women? Uh, there are odd stories, but I, th I, I think we need to be sceptical about this, well, unfortunately. But uh, there are, there's the odd story of a highway, uh, highway woman coming through, but um, I don't think there were that many of them in reality. It was, um, it was a very masculine activity. So these highwaymen often committed some pretty brutal crimes. You mentioned that, that most of them were the equivalent of, of modern-day muggers. But some went way overboard with the violence, right? They, they raped, tortured people, cut out tongues of witnesses who might identify them. One highwayman cut off the finger of a woman to, to get her ring. Yeah, uh, there, there were some pretty bad people among them. I think the basic point is that uh, highway robbery depended on the threat or the application of violence. You know, the uh, they invariably held up uh, people. Uh, and, and as you say, very often, you know, um, women returning from market, if you like, uh, with money on them. And even at a higher level, I mean, they do hold up stagecoaches uh, with pistols and carbines. Uh, so, you know, uh, they say basically hand over or there's going to be problems for you. Right, right. So who are some of the notorious highwaymen who preceded Dick Turpin? Well, it, it's hard to say. I mean, and Duval, I think, is interesting as the prototype of the dashing romantic highwayman. But it's hard to pin them down, really. I mean, uh, there are sort of various semi-fictionalized figures who were portrayed as being gallant. And in the pamphlet literature, there's a whole range of stories. I mean, there's, I, I'm sorry, I forget the name, but it's one unfortunate who is executed after being caught after his first ever robbery, you know, so uh, that's really bad news. Others operate as highwaymen for a period of years. So uh, it's, um, there was a highwayman, highwayman called Neverson, for example, who uh, is Yorkshire's own highwayman. He's, he's still remembered by older people in York, in the north of England, uh, as somebody who did attract a lot of attention. So. You know, there's a whole range of stories about these people. Uh, one of the events that tarnished Duval's reputation as a gentleman robber happened, you write, when he robbed a coach filled with genteel ladies, one of whom had a baby sucking on a, a silver bottle. Yeah, and uh, yeah, this is... This is the sort of thing you have to set against the romantic image. So, you know, you get different stories from different angles. But as I said earlier, uh, I think uh, a lot of these are very unpleasant people and there is always that threat of violence in what they're doing. Right. And he basically uh, took the bottle from the baby's mouth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
So we haven't talked much about Turpin yet, but it's interesting that that on the list of, of really important highwaymen, Turpin, during his day, was rarely, if ever, mentioned, right? Yeah, this is this really puzzled me when I was researching the book because, um, you know, okay, when he was executed uh, in 1739, there were two pamphlets written about him, uh, one of which was written by the man who was what's known as the clerk of the peace for the um, uh, the county where he was picked up. The clerk of the peace, as the name suggests, is basically uh, a man who is responsible for the legal administration uh, in the area where he lives, in the county where he lives. And that is, as far as we can tell, pretty factual and tells the story of the trial and execution very, very effectively. And there's another pamphlet which is probably sort of uh, semi-fictionalised. So this is not unusual, and especially when a highwayman is executed, uh, you'll get a pamphlet coming out because it's newsworthy. You know, it sells. And obviously there's usually a moralising effort, uh, a moralising sort of uh, impact as well. But um, I was surprised to find that in these big compendia of highwaymen, stories of highwaymen and other wrongdoers, Turpin just doesn't get mentioned. I mean, there's a couple of pamphlets when he's executed, then he seems to get forgotten over the rest of the 18th century, which, you know, poses the big, well, yeah, when I was researching the book, poses the big problem. Why is it that he's probably the only highway robber who is from that period who's uh, well-known in Britain today. So it's a, that was one of the intriguing questions. At, at the turn of the 18th century, there, there were various classes of criminals, and the belief began to grow that highwaymen were superior to other criminals. Why do you think that was? Well, I think, uh, you know, the whole issue of criminality in the early 18th century is utterly fascinating because we have got a lot of evidence. And another, well, two other preliminary points are, firstly, as I've already suggested, the idea that there are a lot of ephemeral publications about highway robbers. Joined to this is uh, the fact that from, well, yeah, it's stretching it slightly, but from the early 18th century, you've also got uh, the equivalent of newspapers. So people can read about robberies and other crimes in their newspapers. And added to this, uh, something which, again, was I'd picked up from other, uh, other sources, but the Turpin story does bring it forward, is that you've got, for the first time, you have this, um, obviously, in the United States today, obviously, in the United Kingdom and other places today, a public concern about crime, and it being seen as a political problem, it's something that politicians ought to do something about. Now, this is a new idea in the early 18th century. Now, with the idea of highway robbers being a sort of you know, superior class of criminal, I think it is to do with the fact that um, they are, well, you know, going out and doing things which are risky. Uh, now, I think most highway robbers, Turpin especially, would sort of be choosy about who they targeted. But, um, you know, you have men who are or can be expert riders. They are daring. They go out in small groups. They go out individually. Uh, they confront their victims. Sometimes their victims outnumber them. And you have these this sort of image of them being created in the early 18th century. So I think, and some of them do claim to be gentlemen, you know, rightly or wrongly. So I think you are looking at a idea of a criminal who is capable of being seen and probably thinks of himself as being above the average sort of shoplifter or or street criminal, you know, the, the, the average criminal. And throughout history, 
and I know this is the case with Robin Hood, and in the United States we have Jesse James, John Dillinger. Yeah. A good part of the reason these men were, are romanticized is that occasionally they would, after a successful robbery, hand out a bit of money to some yeah. poor down on his luck or down on her luck soul along the way. Yeah, um, there's no evidence that Turpin actually did that. He certainly he robbed from anybody he could rob from. But um, in the later, you know, in, in the we talked about earlier the the modern image of Turpin. Uh, I think if you ask people about if you just walk people off the streets in, in in Britain and ask them about Turpin, there would be this idea that he was a sort of figure who would rob from the rich and give to the poor. Um, I have found absolutely no evidence that he actually did that. So you've got this constant tension between you know what what you could possibly described as the historical reality and the way in which the man's remembered today. Yeah. Uh, part of your book focuses on London's underworld at the turn of the 18th century, which I found fascinating. And one of the m- most notorious criminal kingpins of that time was a man named Jonathan Wild. Yeah. Can you talk about him and the state of criminality in this period? Yeah, there's been a lot of research done on London criminality. I mean, one of the problems you know, with, with talking to you and also in writing the book that there hasn't been a serious academic study of highway robbery, which would be extremely interesting. But there's been a lot of work on London. So let's think. Um, London by the early 18th century is about half a million people, which makes it one of the biggest cities in Europe, if not the world. And a lot of that population is poor. Uh, there's a lot of immigrants from other, other parts of Britain, from uh, less so from other parts of Europe. And obviously, you've got the, the situation that you might find in, say, New York in the mid-19th century. There's a lot of poor people, and you're beginning to get organized criminality. So you've got criminal networks, you've got gangs. I mean, the, the newspapers of the period are obsessed by gangs, and uh, yeah, there, there are obviously groups of criminals coming together. Um, there's prostitution, both organized and unorganized. And there's also uh, increasingly mechanisms for the receiving of stolen goods. What Wilde comes into the picture as is somebody who really organizes receiving stolen goods, but who will also, um, and again, you've always got the myths coming in, but who does apparently organize robberies and then contact the victim and saying that you know, if you want your, your watch back or if you want your precious clock back or whatever, I can do that for you. Uh, and he is also letting the authorities know about criminals who refuse to be controlled by him. So you've virtually got protection rackets going on as well. So he is the first really big criminal entrepreneur to come forward in England in the very early 17th century. And another point which, you know, needn't well, be a, it's an interesting thing to float in conversation is that crime develops um, alongside with capitalism you know london is becoming more commercial there's a lot of money about there are quite simply more things to steal there are more people to rob from uh, and this will produce a certain form of criminality i think and london uh, becomes a hub for these highwaymen yeah they can hide out uh, hang out in, in the same places socialize with uh, like-minded outlaws and recruit new members into their own gangs. Yeah, um, well, I think it's, you know, again, like criminal networks these days. I think the crucial point is that 
big cities do provide a degree of anonymity. You know, I've, I've did a lot of my early work was on crime in small rural communities. Of course, everybody knows everybody, and you know what's going on. Uh, if you're a criminal or you know anything really, uh, if you're in a city of half a million people, it's easier to hide your identity. And as you said quite correctly, you can meet up with other people who you know, might want to join you. I mean, this idea of the gang is fairly fluid. That um, if you want some sort of criminal specialist to join you in an enterprise, you'll get to meet them, you'll get to know them. There are sort of networks of people who know each other. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, there are also a lot more targets. I mean, if you're based in London, you have routes out of the capital or into the capital, which are regularly used by travellers, certainly regularly used by stagecoaches. Uh, some of those travellers will be carrying money. Um, I was I was brought up in south-east London and uh, on the Kent side, and there was an area there known as Shooter's Hill, which is you know now a perfectly reasonable lower middle-class suburb, uh, which was uh, the centre of highway robbery, because then it was just a sort of a virtually unpopulated heath. So Highway robbers could hide uh, off the road. They could see people coming from a distance. They could rob them if they wanted to. So London was an absolute dream for the career criminal, for the professional criminal. We will be back after a brief word from our sponsors. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, 
and Can I Control My Co-Host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. And we have returned. So let's go to Dick Turpin and his story. You, you, you write that it's difficult documenting Turpin's early history. There's not much known about his background. Yeah, um, that's true. Uh, further to what we were saying earlier, though, he does appear to come from you know, a, 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 what could be described as a middle-class, certainly a lower-middle-class lower background. His father was a butcher, and um, Turpin was born in 1705. We do know that. We've got his baptismal records at a place called Hempstead in Essex in southeastern England. So Essex is a county that does abut London, and Turpin was born broadly speaking, at the London e end of it. Now, I think the uh, a reasonable supposition, I mean, Turpin follows his father into uh, the butchering trade. He becomes, he's apprenticed as a butcher. He sets up as a butcher with his own butcher's shop. And I think, I don't know if you have the term fencing in the United States, but uh, it's a term used in Britain for uh, disposing of stolen goods. You supply somebody with something stolen, and he passes it on. It's known as fencing over here. Over here too, yes. Yeah, fine, good, good, good. Uh, so um, what? I, this is supposition, but I think it's quite a reasonable supposition. Turpin uh, becomes involved with a gang of deer stealers. Now, there are a number of big deer parks in that side of Essex. Uh, in particular, there's Waltham Forest, which is owned by the Crown. So it's a royal deer park. And the... Gregory gang, uh, they're headed by a couple of brothers surnamed Gregory. Uh, this gang does steal deer, uh, and I think Turpin becomes involved in them. This is supposition, but I think it's, it sounds plausible, because as a butcher, he can fence stolen goods for them, stolen venison in particular. And now this time, the only people legally entitled to eat venison were the landed gentry, you know, people uh, who... who on, on whose ground deer could be raised. But there is a market, especially in London, uh, with that sort of grouping of reasonably rich people for venison. So I think Turpin is uh, being supplied with venison by the Gregory gang, which he's then selling on uh, to his customers, uh, possibly in London, but certainly uh, reasonably affluent people on that side of Essex. So I think this is how Turpin first becomes involved in crime. Yeah, so he becomes associated with this Essex gang. As you said, the leaders are the Gregory brothers, uh, Samuel Gregory, his brothers, Jasper and Jeremy. Uh, a lot of people come and go in this gang. Uh, there's a former blacksmith named Joseph Rose, his, his girlfriend, Mary Brazier, and one of the things I found interesting about this gang is that the age range w was pretty wide. It included a 16-year-old a boy named John Wheeler, but also a man in his late 50s uh, named Humphrey Walker. Yeah, I think, I, think the, uh, I think most of them would be sort of in their 20s or 30s. But yeah, you've got this age range, uh, which is, you know, interesting. So their crimes begin with robberies, threats. But, but there's not much violence at the beginning for this Essex gang, but, but it does grow over time. They get worse. I think, I'd, 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 I'd argue with that. I think um, 
Yeah, I mean, obviously they 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 do get a long way with threats, but uh, they very rapidly deploy a lot of violence, uh, and these these are you know the sort of thing that you just dread happening. Um, they'll target uh, normally sort of reasonably isolated places, and um, you know four or five members of the gang, sometimes more, armed with pistols and and uh, carbines, uh, masks will break into the house and will demand valuables or money in the house. Uh, and they will, from a very early stage in their activities, actually use violence against people. And some of this violence is quite shocking. I mean, regularly, they will uh, mistreat. I think, I think torture is not too strong a word to use, but certainly mistreat or torture the, household, the householder into telling them where valuables are, and they will um, not stop uh, at uh, using this sort of conduct against women. So, um, you know, again, the unpleasantness of the criminals of this period does come through very strongly in this gang's activities. Right, right. So arguably the, the, the most infamous crime by this gang came in February of 1735 when they committed a robbery at, at the house of a farmer named Joseph Lawrence. Can you walk us through what happened? Yeah. Um, Joseph Lawrence uh, owned a farm called Earlsbury Farm, which was in Edgware. Now, uh, these days, Edgware is part of Greater London. At that stage, it was a village on the outskirts of London. Uh, And again, we return to the point I made earlier about London providing a lot of targets in its periphery uh, for all sorts of crimes. And I think there is some suggestion that at least one of the gang members knew uh, about Lawrence and about the fact that he was you know, regarded as a reasonably well-off man. So they're not just going into it blind. They are going to a target. So um, a number of, I forget it was four or five, it was something like that, members of the gang, including Turpin, get together. Uh, they ride out from their sort of you know, London centre. Uh, they stop at two public houses en route to have a drink and have something to eat. And then they carry out one of their classic gangs attack, gang attacks on this farm. And this is the event which I think really breaks the gang because the authorities take this very, very seriously. But Joseph Lawrence, who's in his early 70s, um, you know, he's 71, 72, something like that, he has his trousers pulled down. Uh, he is sat on a fire as a way of torture to make him tell where the valuables are. He's led around the house uh, he's hit around the head with pistols, uh, and Turpin plays an active part in this. One of his servants is tied up, and you know, fortunately nothing much happens to them. But one of the Gregory brothers takes a servant girl called Dorothy Street upstairs and rapes her at pistol point. So this is an absolutely awful crime. Uh, they do get away with a bit of money and a bit of goods, but um, it is uh, an offence which really does send a shock through the, through the area. Right, right. So who is tasked with finding these gang members? What does law enforcement look like in London at this time? Well, this end of law enforcement looks pretty shaky, actually. Um, Obviously, there isn't a professional police force. There is a system of parish constables, uh, which... Yeah, it's not as ineffective as it's been made out, but which is not, you know, the constable would would investigate, but he wouldn't see it as his role to really go out and find these people. There are also people called justices of the peace who were local legal administrators uh, from the gentry. But the 
Why the story works out, if you'd like me to talk you through it, is absolutely indicative of how the system operated. Uh, because, uh, one, I mentioned that the members of the gang stopped at two public houses on their way to the uh, to the farm. And uh, what happens is the owner of one of those one of those pubs is in London. Now, I don't think it's entirely coincidental, but certainly the son of uh, John Lawrence and one of the servants is in the in the area where they think criminals might be hanging out. They're looking for people. But this uh, public house owner recognizes uh, some of the gang's horses from uh, you know, the night when they, when they sort of stop for a drink at his, at his pub. He goes and tells the local constable. The local constable gets uh, you know, what is basically a posse together, uh, a group of men, and they descend on the gang members who are drinking. I think there's three or four of them drinking together. The pub owner recognizes the three. I think there's three men and this, this woman uh, that you mentioned earlier were drinking together in, in another pub. And the owner of the pub where they stopped to drink on their way to the robbery identifies them. So it's basically a happenstance that the gang members are actually caught. And they include the uh, 16-year-old, about 16-year-old that you mentioned earlier, John Wheeler. So when these guys are hauled in, they'll be taken by the constable and his associates, the the men he's got together, to uh, justice of the peace the justice of the peace commits them to prison to await trial. Now, another element in this, which is, again, indicative of how the system works, is the system works heavily on the awarding of rewards. So when these men go and catch the robbers, their assumption is that there's a fair chance that these robbers are going to be convicted, in which case the people arresting them will get a reward. And we know about what happens through... Uh, the records of uh, the Exchequer, which is the sort of, if you like, the financial department in the in the UK, in the certainly the, the English government in the system, uh, we have documentation about the details of rewards being handed out to people who catch criminals. So basically, it's just bad luck that this guy recognises the horses, uh, and then the system swings in with the parish constable calling a posse together, who then go in and arrest the men, and also. I think at least some of these people are armed. And another thing which comes across from the Turpin story is that firearms were very readily available in this period. There's no sort of licensing or anything like that in the period. So the people go in, they arrest the robbers. The assumption is they're going to be getting a financial reward at the end of it. And John Wheeler basically turns on his fellow gang members, right? Yeah, he, t- he turns King's evidence. Uh, he's, he's a young lad. He doesn't want to get executed. So um, he basically starts starts talking, yeah. A thievery robbery could get you hanged in this time and place. Yeah, it's, um, again, uh, very alien from, from uh, our idea of how a criminal justice system ought to operate. But certainly highway robbery, uh, shop- shoplifting, Horse stealing, which is what Turpin is eventually done for, uh, were potentially capital offences. But what happens, uh, it's it's like a lottery. Um, If you are young, if you've got people who come in to swear to your good character, if it's a first offence, if it's a comparatively minor offence, you probably won't get executed. Now, other things can happen to you. 
The most important of these in this period, uh, you'll be delighted to know, uh, is the sending of convicted English criminals to the American colonies, certainly Virginia and Maryland. Uh, I forget the exact figure, but I think something like 30,000 convicted criminals are sent by English courts, uh, English and Irish courts in particular, to the colonies, to the American colonies, as an alternative to capital punishment. So if you appear on a capital charge in a court in this period, there's an extremely good chance that you won't get executed, that you'll get a sort of secondary punishment of some sort. Uh, You write that Mary Brazier, the lone female in the gang, she received a sentence of 14 years of, of penal servitude in America. That was absolutely standard, yeah. Uh, so, indeed, I think there was another gang member who also went out, but uh, there were just the two of them who uh, were sent to the colonies. And you know, I don't think there's any way of tracing what happened to her afterwards. And the Gregory brothers are all captured, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I was surprised at how swiftly the, the wheels of justice turned. Well, yeah, I mean, it, as I said, it's a very hit-and-miss system, but on this, in, this, in this example, it certainly hit. And I think uh, part of the reason was that, uh, as we were talking about earlier, that Ellsbury Farm robbery was something which I think really did attract a lot of attention. And once they caught the guys, I think the chances of not being executed were actually pretty slim. In fact, another uh, feature of the system which would happen to particularly – serious criminals, which happened to three of the gang, I think including one of the Gregory brothers, at least one, is that after execution, the bodies would be displayed in chains, what was known as gibbeting, at the place where the crime took place. So again, um, this was not very frequently done, but in very severe cases, the body of the executed criminal will be taken back and hung, uh, it's called hanging in chains, it's hanging in a cage, a metal cage, and the body would be left uh, at the top of a pole simply to rot in full view of the public um, as a sign of the disapprobation of the authorities and also as a warning to other potential evildoers. Yikes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So with with most of the gang uh, arrested, tried, punished, there were just a handful left, including Dick Turpin. And it's only after the Essex gang is, is basically eliminated that Turpin begins to commit the crimes that he becomes most well-known for, right? Yeah, uh, and again, it's, you know, it's, it's a very interesting how that reputation builds up. But um, yeah, uh, I think it's in the spring of 1735, just after the gang has been caught, that Turpin indeed... There's one other member of the gang uh, who is associated with him briefly, but the two of them do start to rob. uh, And the name, Turpin's name does get known. I mean, Turpin is mentioned in the newspapers as being uh, the man who is perpetrating these offences, or sometimes you get something like, you know, the robbery is reputed to have been carried out by Turpin, who... You know, was recently in in the in the Essex gang or whatever. So yeah, uh, this is when he starts in uh, the spring, early summer of 1735. Again, operating mainly on the London peripheries. Uh, at some point, Turpin befriends a man named Matthew King. Yeah. Would you talk about the confrontation that Turpin and King are involved in uh, that that leads to a shooting? 
Yeah, this is um, one of the, the key incidents, if you like. Um, as, as we've established, Turpin uh, yeah, began his career as a highwayman uh, in 1735. Um, things get too hot for him, and he disappears from the historical record. And what we think happened uh, is that he goes to the Netherlands for a while, you know, simply leaves the country. He turns up again in, se- in early 1737, and at this stage his, he associates with, um, particularly with this man, Matthew King. And I think it's the beginning of May 1737, uh, the two of them are operating from a base in, in, in London, in sort of East London, where there's a lot of sort of criminal activity. And they steal a horse called White Stockings. I mean, even at this stage, they're still uh, stealing horses as well as carrying out highway robberies. Highway robberies, And the owner of the horse recognises it. I mean, it's been left at a stable. And he get again gets together a group of uh, people uh, to help him get the criminals. Again, they're armed. They've got pistols. And uh, they attempt to arrest King. Uh, King resists arrest. Turpin is in the area. We don't know exactly what happens. There are differing accounts. Um, but according to one story, one of these pamphlets produced by a man called Bayes, he claims that Turpin shoots King. We're not certain if it's accidentally or if it's to stop King talking, but uh, it is disputed. But there are certainly suggestions, I'll put it no more strongly than that, that Turpin shot Matthew King uh, and that it may have been deliberate. It was probably accidental. It's one of these occasions when people are sort of waving guns around and you know, bad things happen. But certainly King is uh, mortally wounded. He dies, he dies shortly afterwards. And uh, Turpin again sort of disappears from the scene. So one of Turpin's hideouts is in a place called Epping Forest. Yeah. Which still exists, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's uh, It used to be a sort of great sort of... Uh, place for days out for East Londoners, uh, for my parents' generation, certainly. And it, it sits between uh, Essex and London. Yeah, it's, it, it, was, it was technically in, in Essex, but it was on the London side of Essex. So, yeah, there, there would be a lot of contacts with the capital. So it, it's here in the, this forest that he's uh, holed up in a cave, mm. which he has uh, stocked with supplies. And it's while he's he's hiding out here that he has another confrontation, a confrontation that becomes a, a major part of his legend, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I'm sorry, I forget the guy's name. but um, a ser- His name is Morris. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Uh, a, a man who is a servant of one of the keepers of Epping Forest, you know, the, 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 the keepers of the people who are responsible for protecting the deer and keeping law and order and so on. Uh, he... Uh, Totally crazily, I mean, it must be motivated by by the thought of a reward. He attempts to arrest Turpin single-handed. Uh, he's, he's carrying a gun, uh, and uh, Turpin shoots him, probably with a carbine, and you know, kills him, in effect. And this means that Turpin, apart from everything else, is already, uh, already there's a standard reward for catching a highwayman. Uh, Turpin now has a £200 reward placed on his head. Now, converting sums of money from the early 18th century into modern equivalents is very difficult. But £200 would be about five times the, the the equivalent of five times the annual wage of a manual worker in this period. So it is a substantial sum of money. Uh, and 
Turpin, you know, quite simply disappears at this stage. So, but yes, uh, so now adding to house robbery, highway robbery, there's a there's a set reward for turning in a highway robber. So it would be a reward for turning him in for that. But now he's got two hundred pounds on his head for murder. We will return momentarily, and we are back once more. So you dispel many myths about Dick Turpin. And we've, we've talked some about this already. The idea of this good-natured, daring uh, gentleman robber. Yeah. Um, but, but Turpin himself was, was a hard man, you write, capable of acts of, of cruelty, quick-tempered, prone to violence, and not a daredevil, uh, despite the folklore that surrounds him today. Well, I mean, the, the Matthew King incident, you know, whether he shot King or not, uh, he got out of it as quickly, he, as quickly as possible. You can understand that. And there are other occasions when, uh, you know, confronted by danger, he sort of basically cut and run. Yeah. So I'd like to ask you about Black Bess. Yeah. His loyal companion and an important part of the Dick Turpin mythology. Can you talk about where... Black Bess came from. Yeah, um, I well, the whole legend, if you like, comes from uh, a man called uh, William Harrison Ainsworth, who in 1834, so you know, roughly a century after Turpin's execution, published a novel called Rookwood. Now, I have read Rookwood. It would de- it would defy uh, presenting the plot to you. It's it's just. Uh, loopy basically but um, <laughs> Turpin uh, is uh, emerges as the hero of a sort of subplot there isn't a definite hero in the novel and it is Ainsworth who creates the Turpin legend now Blackbess specifically um, uh, Turpin does move north I mean he uh, emerges in Yorkshire which is in northern England it's about 200 miles from London uh, in uh, early 1737, sorry, in the summer of 1737, a couple of months after he commits the murder, uh, he emerges in Yorkshire. So it takes him about two months to get up there. And uh, through a variety of circumstances, which you know, I'll talk to you about later if you want me to, he does actually get executed in York in uh, April 1739. But in the legend... He rides, he's um, in, in Rookwood, if you like, which is where, where the story really comes from. Uh, he is uh, drinking with friends at a place called Kilburn, which is, again, then a village just outside London, now part of London. And uh, there's an attempt to arrest him. And he jumps on his faithful steed, Black Bess, and rides up to London, uh, rides up to York overnight. So that's a 200-mile journey overnight. Now, point one, I'm told by people who know about horse riding, I don't, that uh, you couldn't really ride a horse that hard. Uh, and in fact, in the novel, Black Bess dies just outside York and um, dies of exhaustion. Uh, but Black Bess is uh, the sort of, probably the most famous animal in uh, English fiction, really. Uh, and Ainsworth got the idea that I'd stress there's absolutely nothing in the historical record to suggest that Turbin had a horse called Black Bess or that he rode to London uh, overnight. Yes, it's just simply not there. There are earlier legends about the ride to York which are associated with uh, inter alia uh, earlier highwaymen. Uh, but Ainsworth 
uh, creates Black Bess and he creates the Rite of York. Now, Black Bess, uh, there is an earlier pamphlet uh, which does attribute the Rite of York to Turpin. Uh, this came out in 1808, so it's conceivable that Ainsworth uh, might have known about this. So in fact, it's very likely. Black Bess, uh, there is uh, another sort of work of you know popular uh, fiction which Ainsworth might have come across, which refers to Turpin riding on his black mare called Bess. And also, interestingly, there's a folk dance called Black Bess, uh, which Ainsworth, as a young man about town, he was brought up in Manchester, again in northern England. He might have uh, you know, known the tune or, or known the dance. But uh, in a marvellous marvellous feat of alliteration, it is Ainsworth who creates the horse Black Bess, uh, and she is, becomes absolutely central to the Turpin story. Right. And some people uh, believe uh, still today, right, that, that Black Bess is buried alongside Turpin. Yeah. And part of that belief has to do with the fact that his, his plot is particularly large and it looks like it could fit a human and a horse <laughs> side by side. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, that's another long story, but I mean, certainly uh, Black Bess wasn't here. Yeah, Black Bess didn't exist. Uh, and uh, yeah. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. So it's extremely unlikely you'd bury a horse in a churchyard. Yeah. <laughs> so how was Dick Turpin finally identified and captured? Well, um, he, as I said, he sort of turns up in Yorkshire in the summer of 1737 under an assumed name, uh, and John, John Palmer, he's calling himself. Uh, and I'd stress that in this period, it's very easy to lose your identity. It'd be very difficult these days, you know, with uh, you know, bank accounts, um, uh, what we call social security over here, uh, national health numbers and so on. It'd be very difficult to take on an assumed identity. It's possible. But in this period, Turpin, uh, like other people, could just, you know, move 200 miles away from where he's known, call himself John Palmer. Uh, one issue, of course, that... Well, you're speaking as somebody from the South who, who lives in Yorkshire. This is still an issue today. But, I mean, Turpin would have had a very, very different accent from the people he was moving moving among. You know, the Essex accent would have been very different from Yorkshire. And it's been suggested that uh, his, mother's, his mother's maiden name was Palminter. And it's suggested that Palmer might just be a mishearing on the part of the locals of Palminter. But anyway, uh, he's known as John Palmer, and he... His, he meets, 
CPO problems. Well, a year later, he's been living in the area for about a year. Uh, he's been consulting with the local gentry, is taken as a gentleman, we're told by a couple of witnesses, and he returns from a day's hunting uh, to a place called Bruff in East Yorkshire, where he is living at the time in an inn, and is in a very bad temper for some reason. Again, this is where we get this idea of the, the man with a, with a quick temper. And in a fit of anger, uh, simply shoots a cockerel, which is you know, walking in the street in Bruff. And uh, one of the local residents tells him that's a silly thing to do. And Turpin then threatens to shoot the man who's complaining. So the man who's complaining goes to a local justice of the peace. And there's a system called taking assurance, surety of the peace or swearing the peace against somebody. And what the justice does, and there's another witness who confirms the story, what the justice does is go through an absolutely standard procedure which is called binding Turpin over to keep the peace. It's similar to bailing these days, which I think happens on both sides of the Atlantic. Now, Turpin, uh, without strong local ties, can't produce people to put up bail for him. So what they do is they put him in the House of Correction in a neighbouring town called Beverly. Uh, House of Correction is a sort of local lock-up where you put petty offenders. And while he's being held there, and they're trying to work out what to do with him, stories begin to circulate that this man, John Palmer, is a horse dealer. He's been dealing with horses uh, on the other side of the River Humber in the county of Lincoln. And then stories begin to circulate that he's involved in horse theft. And what happens is he is transferred from uh, the House of Correction at Beverly to York Castle. Now, York Castle is the holding prison for serious offenders who are awaiting trial. Uh, and the way the system works is that two times a year, judges are sent out from London, once in the summer, once in the spring, to try offenders in the localities. So Turpin is being held in jail in York under an assumed name. And this is where the improbability of the story is just wonderful, but it's, it's true. Uh, he writes to his brother-in-law in Essex, asking for his brother-in-law to find character witnesses who will go up north and so that John Palmer is basically a good bloke and shouldn't be executed. Uh, we're back to this idea of the lottery of the criminal trial in this period. Now, at this stage, there isn't a postal system as we understand it today. What happens is uh, letters are left typically at a pub or maybe a shop uh, in the village where they're being sent to, and you have to pay to get the letter. So presumably somebody tells Turpin's brother-in-law, that there's a letter for him in the local pub. The brother-in-law goes in and looks at the letter. Now, we don't know if he recognises the handwriting or whether he just said, he actually says he has no known correspondent in York. Uh, and he just leaves the letter there. So the letter would have just been left there, possibly thrown away, possibly returned to sender. But by the most incredible stroke of bad luck uh somebody who'd been at school with turpin and there was a system called monitoring where senior pupils would help the teacher with basic teaching tasks and this guy had actually taught richard turpin how to write and he recognizes the handwriting on the letter reports this to the local justices of the peace because obviously turpin is you know possibly england's most wanted man but certainly somebody for whom there is a price on his head 
the local justices of the peace in Essex uh, ordered the letter to be opened, and it's discovered that John Palmer, awaiting trial for horse theft at York, is actually Dick Turpin, Richard Turpin, who's wanted for murder in Essex. So the justices contact the York authorities, by post, of course. Uh, the York authorities want the man sent, ask the man to be sent up to identify Turpin, which he does. So John Palmer is now identified as Richard Turpin, and it's extremely unlikely that he's going to escape conviction. If he had escaped conviction at York on a charge of horse theft, everything was in place to take him south to try him for murder in Essex or highway robbery in the London area. So the authorities are now fully alerted to who this man is, and also they've got mechanisms in place to convict him. Do you believe that if his real identity had not been discovered, they might have looked at his uh, horse thievery as a first-time offense and as a reason not to execute him? Yeah, it's a very difficult one. Um, you know, I wouldn't like to commit myself. I think the basic point, as you know, Turpin said at his trial, uh, was that he had no character witnesses. You see, what you really need is people who will come in and give evidence that this you know, this crime was a one-off or it's a first offence or whatever. And I think that he would not have been able to swing that one. And also, uh, there are one of the you – know, when the – justices of the peace in Yorkshire were trying to get some sort of background on him after these accusations were going through. They contacted the local authorities where he claimed to have been living in Lincoln, which is uh, a county neighbouring Yorkshire. Uh, and these wrote back saying he was suspected of sheep theft uh, in that area. So, you know, things would not be looking too good for him, I think. But it's impossible to say, certainly. Yeah. So he's put on trial at the end of March... 1739, right? Yeah. And what were what were some of the more interesting moments of the trial for you? Well, uh, I think the uh, obvious well, the point one is uh, due to this um, Clark of the Peace in the East Riding, we do have a very full account of the trial. We don't normally get this for criminals in this period. I mean, you don't really get actual accounts of what happened in the courtroom. And Turpin... Uh, is identified by you know the man who recognizes his handwriting. He's brought in as a chief witness. Other there's another person from Essex who knows Turpin is brought in. So although Turpin denies knowing these people, he's obviously on a very sort of uh, he's in a very bad position for that. So yeah, he does object and says, so I don't know these people, but the people obviously know him. The judge obviously believes them. And also at least one of the people uh, that he is accused of stealing horses from gives uh, very strong reasoned evidence against him. And this man is an officer in the British Army, so he's got a certain amount of reputation. So I think uh, despite his best efforts, uh, Turpin does not is not in a position to put up a very good defence. And of course, in criminal trials in this period, under English law, you don't have a lawyer speaking on behalf of well, either party. So Turpin has no defence lawyer. Right. So he, he's found guilty. He's sentenced to death. And his execution is scheduled for April 7th, 1739. That's right. And it's in these uh, few days between his conviction and his execution that he does become a celebrity for a short time. 
Yeah, I think um, now again, one of the interesting points for me as a you know somebody who's works on the history of crime for the Turpin story is that a number of the themes that emerge with Turpin are very familiar from London. You know, London is very well documented, and we know a lot about criminals who are executed in London, not so much in the provinces. So once he is identified, I mean, even before conviction, I mean, when, you know, I think it's six weeks before the trial or before the execution, uh, he is identified as Richard Turpin. Uh, People do come from all over the area to sort of... um, visit this famous criminal in prison. And there is a report that the jailer at York Castle was responsible for Turpin's incarceration. There is a report that he makes £100 selling drink to people who come to visit Turpin. You know, so obviously there's a lot of people there. Again, as is completely standard, they um, attempt to get Turpin to die sort of at peace with God. This doesn't get anywhere. They do get a clergyman in who tries to talk him through it. He won't have anything to do with that. But yes, certainly the fact that Richard Turpin is being held in York Castle is something which does attract a lot of attention in the area. Uh, I'm not certain if it makes the national press, but I think it probably does. So, you know, certainly uh, Turpin, Turpin's last few weeks are spent as convivially as possible for somebody who's facing a, a, a criminal trial. I, I found this interesting. Uh, Turpin paid five men ahead of his execution to act as mourners yeah. before and after his passing. Well, I think, you know, it's partly, um, partly, you know, it's nice to have mourners when you're executed, I suppose. Uh, he didn't know anybody in York, so, you know, no family members or friends would have turned out. Uh, and another point, I think, is to make sure that he's buried properly, which, you know, is, is another story. But, um yeah, uh, so he paid them, I think it's £3.10, shillings. so that is you know, a reasonable amount split between seven men. And part of their job was to follow the cart as it yeah. took him to the gallows. Yeah, he's progressed, um, this is again absolutely standard, I think, in all, in all executions. Again, we know a lot about what happens in London. Uh, the execution place in York uh, is about a mile and a half from the city centre, and it was and still is oh, sorry it's not we no longer have executions there uh, but it was adjacent to york racecourse and you know york racecourse still exists and if you ever visit the city there is a stone uh, on the road uh, by york racecourse uh, commemorating that this was the execution place and actually there's a the they had a type of gallows that was uh, triangular in shape if you can imagine wooden triangle placed on three poles. So if you wanted to hang a lot of people, you could do it. That was known as the Three-Legged Mayor. And there is still a pub in York called Three-Legged Mayor with a small-scale example of this uh, execution, of this uh, scaffold in the pub garden. So if you ever visit York, that's another Dick Turpin uh, place you can go to. Oh, very neat. Yeah. So one of the period accounts that that documented his execution, uh, mentioned that when it was time for Turpin to hang, that, that he threw himself off of the ladder. How, how did that work? Yeah. Uh, what happens, uh, there were two ways of uh, ex- executing criminals. You, know, you don't have what, what would be known these days as a drop. You know, So you would either put them on a ladder 
by the gallows, uh, or you would put them on a cart and drive the cart away. Now, in Turpin's case, it was uh, it was a ladder, and he dies bravely. I mean, this is the way highwaymen were supposed to brave uh, to to die on the gallows. Uh, so he sort of you know steadies himself, and then the ladder is is turned, and Turpin sort of drops with his neck obviously in a noose and uh, strangles to death uh, through the hanging. Do you have a superstition in the United States that it's, un- it's uh, unlucky to walk under ladders? Yes, for sure. Yeah. Well, that's the, we think that's the origin. Oh, okay. The executioner's ladder. I mean, there's the obvious practicality of somebody working out there. We think that's the, we think that's the origin of the, um, of the superstition. Oh, interesting. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the ironies you write at Turpin's execution had to do with the background of the man who acted as his executioner? Well, um, on the, uh, in York, I mean, there was not a, in this, this, at this stage, there wasn't a professional executioner. Uh, so it was the practice to um, pardon a capitally convicted criminal uh, and spare him the death sentence on condition that he executed the other capitally convicted criminals. Now, I first came across this years and years ago uh, in um, a sort of, you know, popular book on the history of executions or whatever, and I was very sceptical about it. Then shortly afterwards, I was working through Yorkshire Assize Records, and it was the Assize Court which condemned Turpin, uh, and just looking at a list of prisoners, I forget what I was researching at that stage, but this was when they were still keeping records in Latin in the 17th century, and saw that one of the prisoners, uh, you know, they, they, they gave the outcome of the trials of these prisoners. And one simply had carnifex written by his name. And I checked that out, and that is Latin for executioner. So obviously it was an established practice by the time Turpin was executed. And the guy who executed him was, in fact, a convicted highwayman. So England's most famous highwayman was actually executed by another highwayman. Wow. So after Turpin has been killed, the job of the mourners he hired is not yet finished. They have to protect his body now. Yeah, what happens is, uh, as you were saying earlier, uh, Turpin is a celebrity. So they took his uh, body uh, they, they left it hanging. Left it hanging for a while to make sure he was really dead. The problem with hanging by strangulation is that uh, occasionally uh, you've got something that was called in the time half hanging, where they cut the man down or the woman down and find that they're still alive. Uh, so Turpin's body was left for several hours hanging on the gallows. Then he was cut down, and he was laid out in a pub called the Blue Boar in Castlegate in York, which is another. Dick Turpin memorial site that can be visited. Uh, and you know, people presumably paying a fee actually come to view the body uh, where it's lying. Uh, and then the day after that, on the Sunday, he was executed on the Saturday. On the Sunday, he's executed is at George's Churchyard in York. And according to the pamphlet account, uh, the body is subsequently dug up and it's taken away to a doctor's because doctors were very interested in getting the corpses of criminals to dissect them. You know, you needed bodies for dissection. Uh, In London, the Royal College of Physicians was regularly given, uh, legally given the bodies of executed criminals uh, for the purposes of dissection. Uh, And again, going back to 
you know, provincial practices. Uh, this is one of the very few cases I've come across of it happening in the provinces. Now, the superfluous account, but again, many years ago, I had a student who was doing a MA dissertation on policing in York in the 18th century, and she was working through uh, the local York criminal court, local sessions, and she said, uh, you know, I was giving her a sort of you know, supervision, and she said, um, you know, uh, did you know there are records in uh, the York archives about the burial of Dick Turpin? So you've got the pamphlet account, and then you've got records in the York City archives that absolutely corroborate what happened and fill in more details. That uh, The body was taken away by somebody described as a labourer and was given to a doctor called Marmaduke Palms. My assumption is that the labourer was uh, the servant of this guy who lived in York and put the body in his summer house in his garden uh, to await dissection. Uh, word gets round and a mob mobilises who rescues the body, has a confrontation with the local uh, local constables, and then buries the body, um, this is what the pamphlet re- re- reports, buries the body in lime, in quicklime, so there's no chance of it being resurrected again. And it's buried in St George's Churchyard again. So this absolutely fascinating story about what happens to the body. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. So you point out... Um, that, that when many people see the name Dick Turpin now, it, it's often on the front of a pub. Yeah. And there are English pubs or English-themed pubs around the world that use the name Dick Turpin. Yeah, I'm interested how many, how many Turpin pubs there are. Um, I, I think there's a Dick Turpin pub just outside York. Um, certainly... Um, you know, various places in York claim to be his birthplace. Uh, but, um, yeah, I mean, uh, the name is known uh, quite quite, uh, quite widely, I think. Well, well, this has been so great. I, I've wanted to do a Turpin episode for years and glad we were able to connect and have this conversation. So I know many of your books are available through online bookstores um, here in the U.S., I hope so. And you don't have a uh, website or or anything like that? I don't, I'm afraid, no, no. Well, well, gosh, thanks so much for coming on to talk about the notorious Dick Turpin and helping us sort out fact from fiction. Okay, thanks very much. Again, I have been speaking to Professor James A. Sharp. His book is called Dick Turpin, The Myth of the English Highwayman. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.